Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Our gracious God and Father, we come now to Your Word, to this most important time for us, not to hear what man says, but to hear what You say. So God, we ask that Your Word would be abundantly clear this morning. So that you are exalted and that your name is lifted on high. That we have a sense of the divine authority that your word bears upon our lives. We ask God that you would, by your spirit, unleash its power upon our minds. Holy Spirit, do the transforming work in us that no man can do by persuasion or by constraint. We pray, O God, that You would renew our minds, that our lives might become living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to You, because that is, as Your people redeemed from their sins, our reasonable service of worship to You. That the inner workings of the Word of God in the hands of the Spirit of God would conform us, transform us, that we would not be affected by the outward pressure to give superficial conformity to this world. But we would always find ourselves growing in transformation from the inside out to the living and active Word of God, which is sharp and powerful and able, Lord, to pierce our hearts to the parts we do not even know that exist, to cleanse us from sin, and to make us like the lovely, omnipotent, sovereign King Jesus, who we claim as our chief rock in salvation. Lord Jesus, we pray that You would be present with us in Your Word, which is written as that which is living Word today. May we sense Your presence. May we feel Your power. May we rest in the assurance of Your work for us so that You are supremely loved and praised and treasured above everything else in this world. Lift our affections from that which is dying to that which is alive. From this world to You. May our hope and our song always be of You, Lord. Jesus, You are all that we have. We think we have more, but all we really have is You. So loose us from the things that have us. From the fear of man from the fear of the world, from the love of things lesser and created. That we might realize all we really do have is Christ. And in having Christ, we have all. Build us up, Lord Jesus, as living stones upon You, the cornerstone this morning. That we might cry, and we mean it when we cry, You are the rock of our salvation. You are our foundation and our hope. Father, we came here this morning, enduring another week in the fallen world in which You have placed us. We do not say that complainingly. We say that honestly. And we ask, Father, now that You would from our Immersion in this world, free us so that we might hear. May the things that we've had to deal with in this past week become strangely dim. As if they were altogether forgotten. In the light of the glory and the grace and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Still our hearts now. Open our ears. Conform our will. Let us glorify You, we pray. 
In Jesus' precious name, amen. Open your Bibles to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2. With the Lord's help, we'll look at verses 4 through 8 this morning. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. And coming to Him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense." For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. And to this doom, they were also appointed. Beginning in verse 4, Peter shifts gears and strengthens the believers. He begins by reminding us who we are. But not only who we are, he reminds us where we are Because we have indeed, as he says earlier in verse 3, tasted the kindness of the Lord. Have you tasted of the kindness of the Lord? That's the question before us this morning. Have you tasted the great grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you know it? Have you been enriched by it? Has your life been transformed by it? If it has, then this is not only who you are, but where you are. I want to make an observation this morning that Scripture is replete with a theology of place. A theology of place. There is something to be said for where things occur. The Garden of Eden is described in great detail. Even its geographical parameters, its topographical parameters and Uh, realities are set in Scripture, and God has to place Adam into something. In in other words, into a place. He doesn't just create Adam. He is specific to say, I took him and placed him into something that is clearly defined, a clearly defined space. The Old Testament is full of divinely commanded places that were given names, and oftentimes the children of Israel would erect monuments in that place, to remind them of the work of God in those places. The New Testament is replete with prepositional phrases that remind us that we are in Christ and that we operate in the sphere of being in Him, in a place. Again, the metaphor there of place. As Christians, we are all headed to that place, that most wonderful, that place of all places where the Lord Jesus Christ is. It's not merely an eternal state. It is a physical place, a literal place with a name. Heaven. And so the Bible has a theology of where things are and the importance of where they are is clear. And we are in large part who we are because of where we are. And Peter makes that clear in the text this morning. In these verses, Peter combines these truths for a powerful reassurance for you and for me this morning. Brothers and sisters, we are beat up by the world and beat upon by the world Monday through Saturday. And my hope and my prayer this morning is that as we come together, we are powerfully reassured of who we are in Christ because of where we are with Christ. In life, especially in our present situation, the world just seems to continue to suck the life out of people. 
with despair. No one actually enjoys the old days like we did when you came home and you watched the evening news and it was just something of routine and somewhat relaxing and enjoyable. Nobody enjoys the news of the world today. At least I don't. It's not encouraging. It's not relaxing. There's nothing hopeful about this world because it is, as John said, dying and passing away. But we need to be assured we have a place. And that place is not like this place. That place is perfect because of who that place is built upon. And in our life today, not only do we face the onslaught of the world, but we face it in a strange way. We've become spoiled and we've become soft. No, not us. Surely, he's not talking about me. But we are. We have a plethora of choices today. And let's be honest, we really are spoiled. We really are soft. We're made to believe that life can be whatever you want it to be. I mean, the the sky's the limit for you. Whatever you can imagine and dream, that is your destiny. A favorite word that's bantered about. There's always options to customize everything. I mean, restaurants even have, as their slogan, your way, right away. No rules, just right, however you want it. Man, this is completely customizable to you. You just do you. And yet, we've been set up to have a difficult time in this world by that mentality because in reality, there are only two outcomes to life. And as Christians, we need to be honest about that with ourselves and we need to be honest about that with other people. There are two outcomes to your life there are not a plethora of choices it is either one or it is the other it is either christ or everything else and in the final analysis only christ will matter and nothing else will matter is christ in christ alone as we sang all we have is christ all we have is christ And you either have Christ or you have nothing. There will be no third option. If you are outside of that place. If you are outside of Jesus Christ. And I want us to see this morning from Peter's words in verses 4-8. through That there are two outcomes. Number one, an outcome of blessing in Christ. Or an outcome of judgment outside of Christ. Two outcomes. That's it. End of story. Period. For believers, there is comfort in that truth. For you and I, if we have trusted Christ this morning, there is immense comfort in that truth. Praise God. There is blessing in Christ. There's great judgment. And a lack of assurance for unbelievers who have not accepted Christ. We began by looking at the outcome of blessing in Christ. Would you look at the Bible with me this morning? Verse 4. Actually, let's back up to verse 3. Peter giving that statement, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. In other words, he expects this to be the reality. Those who have tasted the kindness of the Lord are given an eternal store of blessings in Christ. Brothers and sisters, in Christ, the blessings that we have stored up for us are more immeasurable than any blessing you can possibly think of in this moment. I promise you, whatever you think blessings are in this life, they pale in comparison to the true blessings we have yet to realize in Jesus. This world will seem as nothing compared to the riches God has prepared for us in Jesus Christ. He said so as much Himself. Eye has not seen, neither ear heard. What? The things God has in store for them that love Him. 
our blessings in Christ, the outcome of that is just innumerable and incalculable in our fallen state. And Peter spells out in the first two verses here two of these massive truths. Look with me, if you will, and coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Oh, brothers and sisters, the first thing that we have as a blessing, being in the place of Christ, being in Christ, is a never-ending relationship with Christ the living God. When we are communicating, it is not only what we say, but how we say it that's important. Would you agree with that? It's not just what you say, it's how you say it. And uh, In the biblical counseling realm, we, they would call that halo data. What's the, what's the facial expression? What's the body language? I can say, I love you, dear. Or I can say, I love you, dear. And it same words. I said it. Yeah, but how did you say it? It matters, right? Part of how we say it matters. And Peter uses a picture as he begins to communicate, if you will. He uses body language. He uses something and not just saying there's blessing. He enumerates this blessing. He puts all kinds of inflection and, and truth to it that helps embody it in Wrap our minds around this great blessing that is ours. Peter uses a, a very interesting phrase, and coming to him, it literally means coming face to face with someone. It's a term of intimacy and endearment to be near, face to face with someone. You're not talking to them while you're staring down at your phone. You're not just yelling at them while you're multitasking, doing something else. This is a face to face with Christ Himself, it is an intimate relationship. Nothing communicates more care and concern than to stand face to face with someone and say something. You want to hear it. You want to look someone in the eye. You want to read their body language. You know... It, It'd be akin to, you know, a marriage proposal over text. It just misses something. The truth is communicated, but there's something that you want to hear that and see that face to face. You want to read the language that's being given back to you. And so Peter says, as we understand the outcome of our blessing in Christ, notice this, that you are face to face with him. As a believer, you have that type of entrance and intimacy with the Savior of mankind. God's undivided attention is being given to you. Peter says that's how you come to God. Brothers and sisters, listen. That is your blessing. When you come face to face with God, you have His undivided attention. Standing in His presence. This is the type of relationship that we have with the living God, with Jesus Christ Himself. The frequency of our communion with Him is also mentioned. It is constant. Peter, the way he words this is such that in coming to Him, we continue to come to Him. These these living stones, you and I, continue to come to the chief cornerstone and to be built up in Him. Notice what Peter says in verse 5, getting a bit ahead of ourselves here. But what God is building for us, brothers and sisters, is spiritual in nature. It's not carnal, it's not worldly. He's not building a worldly kingdom, therefore our hope is not in a Worldly system. What Christ is building, what God is building is a spiritual structure here in us. I grew up singing the hymn as so many of you did. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. 
Why? Because God is building up a house that is spiritual in nature, that transcends this material world. Therefore, hold on to this world very, very loosely. Now, our blessing comes not in the material, but in the spiritual house that God is raising up. The other blessing in this is that in contrast to physical buildings, there's no end to what you can do in building something spiritually. There are limits to what you can do physically in building anything. Some of us are more limited than others in what you can do in building something physically. But there is a limit for all of us in what we can do. There there is a limit to physical kingdoms. Even if that limit is not necessarily in size, it's certainly in time. Every kingdom of this earth at some point passes away. Kingdoms fall. Kings are removed. There's no more Roman Empire today. There's no more Greek Empire today. There's no Babylonian Empire today. Why? They all fall. Decay with time. But this that God is building knows no limits either in size or in time. And we as His beloved and chosen children never cease coming into that building that God is raising up. That is our highest privilege, brothers and sisters, to look God in the face without end and to fellowship with Him and knowing that we are growing in Him. The fact that He is there is the most amazing, truly miraculous truth of all time. Perhaps we become too accustomed to it. But just allow yourself to be lost in the wonder that God is there and He is there personally to commune with us. That should never escape our attention. That should never escape triggering our deepest sense of desire to worship Him. The fact that He is there and we can always come to Him. Is it a miraculous truth? God should be angry with us. God should and has every right to reject us, but He does not because of His Son, the the chief cornerstone. So we are always able to come to Him truly miraculous. There is the great truth of our never-ending relationship to God being able to always come to Him. But I want you to notice the emphasis that Peter puts upon something that is meant, I believe, to shock our senses. Notice what Peter says. You are coming to Him as a living stone. Anybody ever seen a living stone before? I know I haven't. You can't take its pulse. You can't draw blood. There is nothing changing about a stone. It doesn't grow in stature or size. It's just there. The quintessential inanimate object. And yet Peter says, when we come to Christ, not only is our blessing the the eternal nature of it and the unending nature of it, but we are coming to something that is alive. Something that's living. Something that has feeling to it. Jesus Christ is always available because Jesus Christ is always alive. For He Himself is life. His life is altogether different from human life. That at times must be absent in order to be sustained. You you moms know what I'm talking about. Sometimes you just need to go hide somewhere. Go hide in the pantry. Go hide in the bathroom. Go hide in a closet somewhere. Why? You've got to have a break in order to sustain the little humans around you. To think. To be able to process and just catch your breath for a moment. We have to pull back in order to be able to give out. That's why we have vacations from work in order to be a productive worker. Sometimes you need a break. Jesus never needs a break. We can always come to Him because there is nothing but life issuing forth from Him. It does not have to be refreshed nor regenerated. He does not have to sleep. If those other analogies didn't work for you, then 
Certainly sleep does. You have to sleep to be able, you have to pull away from the world and sleep in order to be able to function. Not Jesus. He's ever alive and ever living and only issues forth life from Him. One commentator says this, no other faith besides the Christian faith, can claim a living founder who has passed through death and who has risen to a triumphant station at God's right hand, there to be continually available to the immediate fellowship of each one who trusts in Him. Why is Christianity unique? Because our Savior is always available in the living and available to us for immediate fellowship. You don't have to get on Jesus' calendar. Jesus never has to say, well, let me see if I have time to to talk to you today. He's immediately and always available as a living stone issuing forth life from Himself. One of the great treats in serious Bible study is to, to learn the personality, right, of the writers. They all have their different tone. And you read John's Gospel and then you read the, the, the letters of John for a second and third John, and then you read Revelation, you, you develop an understanding of John's personality and the way he communicates things. John is a loving man. He's a truthful man, but he's a graceful man. And then there's Peter. And Peter has laid down in black and white, and here it is, and hang on. Luke is very detailed. He's a physician, you understand, and so he's very careful to make sure every detail is recorded matthew is a somewhat of a historian and so he goes and labors and mark mark he's just interested in the action it's just boom 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 one account after the other shortened from all the other gospels just to get through it and then there's paul the attorney the analyst who in great detail describes everything logically and linearly. And there's the Hebrew poets who express things in such... Everybody has a different way of expressing truth. One way we can observe that and learn that is by looking at favorite words that they use. And one of Peter's favorite words is the concept of that word living. Life. It was being alive that was obviously forefront in the way Peter thought. And Jesus Himself understands this. Jesus interacts with Peter in this way. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 16, Jesus is standing in front of all the false gods in the pantheon of um, Caesarea Philippi. Standing in front of them, ask the disciples a question. You see these, who am I? Who do you say that I am? And what is Peter's response? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Not just your God. You're the God of life. You're the one with life in Him coming forth out of Him. You are the living God. Here we see that same passion for life and zest for that which is alive here in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. We also find it in chapter 1, verse 3. He has caused us to be born again to what kind of a hope? Just a hope? No, a living hope. One that issues forth life in that hope. At the end of chapter 1, we find this. That it is the living and enduring Word of God. Peter loves life. And here he says, your God is alive. And from Him issues life. And that's where your life is wrapped up in as well. Well, where do you think Peter came to an understanding of God, his Christology, we might say today, in a theology class? Where did he develop that belief? Perhaps it was from listening to Jesus himself. John chapter 10, verse 10. The thief comes only to kill and to steal and to destroy, but I am come that they might have life. And have it more abundantly. Jesus is the abundant life. He is the abundantly living stone, we might say, in this context. An interesting combination, don't you think? A stone that's abundantly living. 
that's fully alive, always accessible, capable of intimacy. What a contradiction in terms. One does not typically think in those terms, but Peter says that's exactly what Jesus is. And here's the the even more wonderful part about that. The fact that He is alive also allows you to build upon Him as a stone. We focus on the live part, but now let's focus on the stone part. Peter says you come to Him as a living stone it's choice and it's precious. The, the term stone, the Greek word, there are essentially three Greek words that could be used for a stone. And here, Peter uses them in distinction from one another. He uses the term lithos here. A lithos stone, that, that important stone, that massive stone, that one that is taken out of a quarry and carefully assessed for its quality. It's durability. And then the, the construction worker, the carpenter, as it were, fashions and shapes that stone to fit perfectly into a new home. It is perfectly squared. It is perfectly uh, in height and shape and dimension. Everything about the stone is perfect. Why? Because everything else about the house will depend upon that one stone. Now, I know some of you are more handy than I at construction and building things, but probably all of us have experienced at some point in our life the frustration of a room that is not squared. You know? You can't take exact measurements because it kind of has this keystone effect that the room gets wider as it gets taller, or it gets wider as it goes on in length. And it's a frustrating experience to try to square things up, and to, especially if you're cutting something like crown molding with intricate angles. To If it's not square, everything's just off. And here is Jesus. He is the perfectly squared stone. He is the lithos upon which the house is built. It's laid and everything else is built around that. And if that stone is not perfect, then the house will fall. It's highly possible that Peter's intent here is to draw the contrast between Christ with the false gods, whatever they may be, because they're dead, but this stone is living. This perfect stone is alive. Edmund Clowney says this, Christ the living stone, not just because He is a living person, but because He is alive from the dead. How do we know this stone is alive? Because... We saw it raised. It came to life. God set His cornerstone in place by the resurrection. That's why it's a living stone. It's an altogether different kind of stone birthed out of the bowels of the earth. He is alive forevermore. And yet He is one perfect stone that is capable of being built upon. John chapter 5, verses 24 through 26, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me, he has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the son of God and those who hear will live for just as the father has life in himself, even so he gave to the son also to have life in himself. A few verses later, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are they which testify of Me. I am the source of your life. And so Peter says we are coming to Him in the most intimate of, a, of relationships to a stone that is living and perfect in its life. He says, not only is the stone eternal, not only is it living, but it has a better evaluation. Look what he goes on to say. It is choice and precious in the sight of God. Oh, brothers and sisters. This is how we must assess everything. What does God say about it? 
It doesn't matter what I say about it. It doesn't matter what you say about it. It doesn't matter what our favorite person in the world says. What does God say in its evaluation? Ultimately, that will be all that matters. And here, God has evaluated the stone and says, in the sight of God, that stone is choice and it is precious. A very distinct comparison. On the one hand, we will find out in just a moment that men have rejected this stone, but God has accepted this stone as the most valuable of all stones. I don't think I need to tell you, but let me say it just in case. We are living in a world that is growing increasingly hostile to Jesus Christ. Cultural Christianity in the United States is dead. Mere acceptance of Jesus on the basis that we were somehow some Christian nation and so everybody should just accept that and be okay with it, even if they don't believe. Brothers and sisters, that day is gone. And probably good riddance. Because now we will have to contend with the real Jesus. The living Jesus. Not the Jesus of someone's cultural imagination. We will have to deal with the living stone and and, and come to the conclusion ourselves that it is not what is culturally acceptable. What does God say about Him? What does the Bible say about Him? Then that is what we must say about Him. We must believe this to be true about Him. Yes, He is exclusive. Yes, He separates the sheep from the goat and the wheat from the chaff. No, He is not inclusive. And tolerant in the world the, the way the world defines Him. But He is a saving Jesus. Biblically proclaimed. And so we must be careful that we offer the same evaluation of the same Jesus that God offers here God says he is choice and precious where the world will reject and they always will reject a Jesus biblically portrayed and we need to be comfortable with that we must be honest we must be loving in our honesty but we must be honest and never compromising who Jesus is for God has said he is acceptable he's choice and he's precious in the sight of God All the opinions of men will not matter. Whose judgment will we accept? What God declares often will contradict what men declare. What appears to be logical to men is illogical to God and vice versa. So that what God declares ultimately only matters. Why is that true? Because men in their natural, sinful, and fallen state will never be able to accept supernatural truth. Unless the Holy Spirit opens their eyes, changes their hearts, grants them saving faith, lost men cannot be saved because it is absolutely ludicrous to them. It makes no sense. It is a joke to the carnal mind unless God works and opens that mind. Somebody came back from the dead. Ha, yeah, right. Yeah, right. Oh, your little fairy tale spirit God in the sky. And by the way, you're starting to hear this language more. Mocking God. Oh, yeah. Whatever. I'm telling you, we're living in the midst of a revolution that is not political or economical, it's theological. And it's a rejection of God. And yet what only God declares matters. And we must stand upon that and be encouraged in that just as Peter is writing to his people living in very similar times and circumstances. And by the way, the church always has. We've just had a rare exception in our nation's history. Peter says God has issued his statement. Therein ends the matter. Man can't understand this unless God supernaturally causes them to understand. It's furthermore impossible that anything rendered by men in the way of their judgment will alter God's judgment. We will not change the mind of God. The judgment of God regarding His Son is perfect. It's final. It's unchanging. Just as Jesus is perfect. 
and final and unchanging. And for us, brothers and sisters, that is of immense comfort. We are being built upon Him who will not change. Under the duress of pressure in our lives, Jesus won't change. We can continue to build upon Him knowing that He remains faithful and the same and available to us and eternal and never changing. So much of our world seems to be uncertain. I heard someone jokingly say this week, perhaps it's appropriate that whoever is responsible for putting up the calendars in the offices this year has not put up a 2021 calendar. Why bother? Well, there might be some truth to that, given the year we just came out of. Yet, in the midst of all that uncertainty, Jesus is certain. That living stone is set. It is in place. And there is a house without limits because it is spiritual being built upon it. And the gates of hell can't stop the construction. The weather of sin's storm will not delay the workers working. God is building the house. And it cannot be stopped because it is built upon this always there Always certain stone. Brothers and sisters, rest in that comfort. Jesus is not only available, eternal, He is unchanging. The world may rage against our Christ. The the, the nations may rage. The heathen may rage. In fact, Psalm says they do. And we know they do. And we see it and we hear it. And sometimes we're discouraged by that. Don't be discouraged. Realize, with every mocking attempt to dethrone Christ, they're actually showing you how true the Scripture is. They're just proving God's point. They're proving God right. But, all of their raging, all of their attempt to cast down the stone and to develop, to develop some higher spirituality or better way or more tolerant way or more inclusive way will not work. Why? Because it has been chosen and found precious in the sight of God. Chosen, that is to say, the one and only Redeemer selected in eternity past. I asked Terry to read Ephesians 1 this morning for that very purpose. Why? Because it was before the foundation of the world that Christ was chosen as Redeemer. God didn't go along and go, oh boy, speed bump, who are we going to put out there today? Who's in the bullpen today that can go and save the world from sin? No, no, no. From the beginning, God has planned this. He has chosen Christ. And how chosen is He? Well, we get a scene of that in the royal inside of Revelation chapter 5. You remember the, the scene? We're in heaven now. And there's great mourning Because there are scrolls and they are sealed. And no one can open. No one's worthy. Because of what is contained in them, no one can can approach them, take them, open. And John says, But I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Hey, John, stop weeping. Behold the lion that is from the tribe of Judah. The root of David has overcome so as to open the book. And it's seven seals. Jesus is worthy because Jesus has been chosen to accomplish this. And and going back to the, the, the choosing of Christ not only happens in eternity past, God's choosing of us in Christ. Remember I said theology of place. Occurs in eternity past. Ephesians 1 3. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. This house was built long ago. We're realizing that building now, but in the plan of God, it was already built. Every stone placed upon the cornerstone. Peter goes on, he says he's, he is precious, that is, to be esteemed of great worth and value because of his work, namely his resurrection. The Father is absolutely pleased and satisfied by the work of his Son, and thus the stone is not only chosen by God, it's precious because it accomplished all of the purposes of God. What a glorious Christ we're built upon. As we come to verse 5, we find our response to this stone. You also as living stones, and here's a different word for stones. We're not the lithos, we're the smaller stones now. The Petra and the Petros stones. Ironically, Peter's name is derived from this word. And, and these little stones are always coming. You as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. How does it affect us, this cornerstone? Well, we are always coming to Him and we are always being built up. It's a forward-moving language here. We're being built up as a temple because of our union with Christ. We are granted His living status like Savior, like the pardoned sinners who follow Him. We too are living There's no end to what God is doing. This is an edifice of sacrifices. Literally a temple, spiritually speaking. Being built up. What happens in a temple? Worship. Sacrifice. But unlike the Old Testament temple and tabernacles that had physical limitations of day and night, of supply of animals, of only so much material to build it so large, of a priesthood that every few years had to have a new high priest because the the old high priest would pass away. That, That whole system was limited from the beginning and intentionally so. But here in Christ, there is a system that has no limitations, no death, no lack of resource, no lack of how much we can grow this edifice, this building. Peter says, you're not only the living stones that are building up this house of worship for God, you are also the priesthood functioning within the house. A holy priesthood that he'll enumerate on next week even more. We are the priest offering these sacrifices that are spiritual in nature, that God now finds acceptable. It's the language of Romans 12.1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service of spiritual worship. That's what's happening here. We are being created for spiritual service. What do we mean by spiritual service? The Bible lists several things. The praise of God, Hebrews 13, 15. Through Him then let us continually offer up a praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips that give thanks to His name. Thanksgiving and praise of service, Philippians 2, 17. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my faith with you all. The a life of service lived for Christ and for others. Sharing and giving of material goods, Hebrews 13, 16. And do not neglect doing good and sharing. For such are the sacrifices that God is well pleased with. Philippians 4, 18. But I have received everything in full and have abundance. I have, I'm amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus that which you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable offering, well-pleasing to God. And so as Peter speaks about 
spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God. We do these things in the name of Jesus Christ. And that is an act of worship. In holiness and purity and humility, doing it orderly, always to the benefit and comfort of others and spiritual and physical ways, pointing them to Christ and maturity to Him. This is what it means to live as a spiritual sacrifice for Christ. We are the living stones. We are the edifice that is built up. But I want you to notice something in verse 7. I'm sorry, at the end of verse 6. For this is contained in Scripture. What is our comfort in this? Here's what Scripture says. This is the authority of God Himself. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone that we've already elaborated on. But notice our comfort in the last line of verse 6. He who believes in Him will not be disappointed. Peter's saying essentially the same as other biblical writers, for it is written, or it stands written, it is in stone. This is the truth. This is settled truth. God determined to lay in Zion that cornerstone of Christ. You are His people being built upon Him, and you will never be disappointed. The word disappointed here, I think, In English, it doesn't do very well. We would do better to say, you will never be ashamed. You will never experience shame. As you are those little living stones built upon the big living stone, the, the, the inspector will never come by and look at your stone and shame you. Because you are connected to the chief stone, therefore you are perfect and acceptable in the sight of God, the Father and the chief inspector. There will be no shame for the Christian. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation, no shame to those who are in Jesus Christ. Christian, our great hope is this. That we will never see a frown on the face of God when He looks at us. Because we are built on Christ. There will be no shame. There will be no condemnation. There will be no guilt. There will be no tish tish. If only you had. Well I guess that's okay. We all know what that is to experience that on a human level. The sinking heart. The discouragement. But it will never happen with God the Father. The living stones built up on the chief cornerstone will never be disappointed. Brothers and sisters, what does that do for you? What does that do for you? To know that when you are in Christ and on Christ, there will never be the frown of God's disappointment directed towards you? That is joy, unspeakable, full of glory. And the half has not yet been told of what we will experience in God's approval of us being built upon the rock. The language is actually a lot stronger than even that. How many of you remember English class and getting in trouble for writing a sentence at some point in your formative years Because you used a double negative. Remember that? You can't do that. Well, Peter would have flunked your English class. Because Peter uses a double negative. He is so convinced. He's so fired up about what he's teaching. He uses two negatives that never happens. This is rare, but Peter's just saying, no, not ever, 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 ever will you be ashamed. Or put to shame. He just can't find the words. It's, as you're reading this, it's almost like poor Peter. He's just about to explode. He's so enthused. Not ever at all will he be dis- stand and 
find God disappointed him. And oh my, how Peter could have feared. Think about Peter. Here's Peter. Peter, I'm sure, had flashbacks. As he remembered years earlier, there is the living stone, bloodied, crowned with thorns, beaten, mocked. And a little girl says to Peter, aren't you with him? And Peter says, I don't know who you're talking about. No, no, I've seen you with him. I don't know him. No, no, I'm sure of it. I don't know him. And now here's Peter. And he says, I will never stand ashamed before God. Yes, I denied him. Three times. I who knew him better than anyone. Denied him. And yet I can safely say that because he is who he is and what he is, I will never be ashamed, even though I denied him. Brothers and sisters, that is a powerful assurance. What sin have you committed? Oh, I don't know. But I can tell you this, if Peter could deny Jesus in his greatest hour of need and still stand and say, we will never be ashamed, then we shouldn't either. Then we can have that same confidence. That being built on Christ, does that comfort you then? It should. It has to. Because there is no greater comfort than that. And just quickly, there's an opposite outcome. One that does not involve assurance. Peter said, this precious value, this precious assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. He never met Fanny Crosby, but if he had, he would have sung that song, I'm sure. This precious value of assurance on the rock is only for those who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone, the lithos, the Christ stone, which the builders have rejected, became the very cornerstone. It was unchanged, Peter says. They didn't change its position. They didn't change its value. They didn't change its power. It is the immovable, omnipresent, immutable Christ. And it is still there to condemn them to this day. But let me tell you, Peter says, what else it becomes to them. Not only is he the cornerstone that they have rejected, standing there unmoved by their raging, by their rejection, by their hatred and their crucifixion, unchanged by all of that, it's still there. And it's having all these little stones now built upon it. It's defying them and it's irritating them. But he's also, that stone becomes the stone of stumbling, the rock of offense. And he switches language again from that lithos stone, that massive stone, to the little stones that you stub your toe on as you walk down the path. The annoyance of it. Tripping and falling and bloodying yourself and bruising yourself and destroying yourself all the way down the path. He says, you reject the cornerstone and the cornerstone will become your judgment. There is no third way. There's not another option. He is either the living stone of your life and of your victory and of your assurance or He is that judgment to you that is in front of your foot every time you try to take a step. 
that is ultimately not assuring. But you must take this Christ and you must deal with Him as one or the other. You must come to Him as a living stone or you must reject Him and experience the judgment of God against you. Notice what he says as he closes verse 8. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. What word? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Notice that's not an invitation. That is a command. The gospel is always a command. You must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You must repent and turn to Christ. You must Turn to Him. Jesus never went down through the, the, the shores of Galilee and said, well, anybody here want to follow me? What did He say? Leave your nets. Follow me. And I will make you fishers of men. Jesus commands. He does not offer weak third options. And He says, Peter says they they stumble because they are disobedient to Christ. They are disobedient to that word that they must believe in Him. They must repent of sin and turn to Christ or else be lost. This is the word which has been spoken. What word? The word beginning in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. That there is a work of God of chosen little stones who are built upon the chosen stone. That language continues in verse 9 as we'll see next week. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. And, 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 and unless they become proud and say, oh, yes, we are on the living stone. Peter says, let me remind you how you got there. You didn't get there because you're better. More intelligent, more spiritually sensitive, more, you know, uh, inner man being transformed, cleaned up, more disciplined. Peter says, you're there because you're a chosen stone too. Don't get the big head. You didn't come to Christ because you're better. You came to Christ because Christ willed that for you. He chose you just as he chose Christ. Why did these other believers not come? Why are they so stiff-necked in their own dis, dis, uh, disobedience and rebellion against God? Peter tells us, to this doom, they were also appointed. Why didn't Pharaoh wake up? Why didn't Judas wake up? Why didn't Esau wake up? I don't know. Because they loved their sin. Because God didn't appoint them to wake up. But you who have, you have God only to think. You have God only to praise. You have God only to rest upon. Because were it not for God and His marvelous plan, not only for Christ, but for you, you'd be just like them. You're not so special. You didn't do anything to earn this, trust me. It is unmerited grace to this doom, to this doom of rejection. They were appointed. It's the tragedy of human unbelief, and yet it is human unbelief that is adamant in its unbelief. It doesn't want to believe. I've heard people try to feel sorry for Pharaoh. Pharaoh did what Pharaoh wanted to do. Esau did what Esau wanted to do. Judas did what Judas wanted to do. It's in the text. It bears out in experience. The only reason any of us can say we are a living stone built upon the cornerstone is by a gracious work of God. And He deserves all the praise. And we rest assured in Him knowing that it wasn't us that put ourselves there is a him that put us there he that supplied the 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 way to christ 
And so we rest assured. We don't need to fear, Christian, that we will fall away because you've been chosen as precious in Christ, sealed into Christ, as Ephesians 1 tells we are sealed in Him and by His Spirit, appropriated faith by God so that we will not fall away. Our outcome is secured by a work of God, by a work of His grace. And in that we rest. Assured in the place of Christ our rock. Gracious Father, thank You for this Word that has been spoken to us. Father, Your Word is always clear and it's always right. It just isn't always easy for us to accept. For a variety of reasons, Lord. We just feel that as somehow we're just too far gone, we're just too bad, that God couldn't really love us, that You really couldn't be that available to us. But You are. Or, or that, that, that somehow we just can't accept that. I had to have done something to contribute to this. No. It's only by Your sheer grace to us. It can be that you're so harsh, God, that you would judge the the lost world in that way. Yet we forget what we all really deserve. No one deserves salvation. No one deserves to be built upon the cornerstone. And so any who perish have just gotten what their day's worth of labor has earned. And those of us who experience life don't get what we've earned. We get what was given. Given through the precious and chosen cornerstone of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Father, on all these fronts, help us to accept Your Word as it is. As it is written in front of us. And to rest assured and to rest humbly and to rest worshipfully. Because you are a God worthy of our praise. We love you, Lord Jesus, because you first loved us, 1 John tells us. But we do love you more and more as we see the truths of your glory and of your steadfast immovable salvation for us unfolded in your word oh lord jesus regardless of how much we think we love you today cause us to love you more this afternoon and tomorrow reveal that sacred place where you have put us more and more to us that we might love you and worship you all the more For we pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.